0: Seminar 1, Lesson 9, On Narcissism, Concerning Performatives, Sexuality and Libido, Freud or Jung, The Imaginary and Neurosis, The Symbolic and Psychosis. For those who weren't here the last time, I am going to appraise the utility as I see it of bringing Freud's article, Zur Einfuhrung der Narzissmus in at this point. Part 1. How can we take stock of our findings to date? This week I realized, not without satisfaction that some of you have started to be seriously concerned about the systematic usage that I recommend to you here and have done for some time of the categories of the symbolic and the real. You know that I insist on the notion of the symbolic by telling you that it is always advisable to start with that notion in order to understand what we are doing when we intervene in analysis and especially when we intervene in a positive fashion, namely through interpretation. We have been led to emphasize that aspect of resistance, which is to be located at the very level of the utterance of speech. Speech can express the being of the subject, but up to a certain point it never succeeds in so doing. So we have now reached the point where we ask ourselves the question, in relation to speech, how should one locate all these affects, all these imaginary references which are ordinarily invoked? when one wants to define the action of the transference in the analytic experience. You have clearly perceived that it is not a matter of course. Full speech is speech which aims at, which forms, the truth such as it becomes established in the recognition of one person by another. Full speech is speech which performs. fait act. One of the subjects finds himself, afterwards, other than he was before. That is why this dimension cannot be evaded in the analytic experience. We cannot think of the analytic experience as a game, a lure, an intrigue based on an illusion, a suggestion. Its stake is full speech. Once this point has been made, as you might have already noticed, lots of things sort themselves out and are clarified, but lots of paradoxes and contradictions appear. The value of this conception is precisely to bring out these paradoxes and contradictions which doesn't make them opacities and obscurities. On the contrary, it is often what appears to be harmonious and comprehensible which harbors some opacity. And inversely, it is in the antinomy, in the gap, in the difficulty that we happen upon opportunities for transparency. This is the point of view on which our method is founded. And so, I hope, is our progress. The first of the contradictions to appear is the remarkable fact that the analytic method, if it aims at attaining full speech, starts off on a path leading in the diametrically opposed direction insofar as it instructs the subject to delineate a speech, as devoid as possible of any assumption of responsibility, and that it even frees him from any expectation of authenticity. It calls on him to say everything that comes into his head. It is through these very means that it facilitates That is the least one can say. His return onto the path, which, in speech, is below the level of recognition and concerns the third party, the object. Two planes have always been distinguished within which the exchange of human speech is played out. The plane of recognition, insofar as speech links the subjects together into this pact, which transforms them and sets them up as human subjects communicating. A plane of communique in which one can distinguish all sorts of levels, the call, discussion, knowledge, information, but which in the final analysis involves a tendency to reach an agreement on the object. The term agreement is still there. But here, the emphasis is placed on the object considered as external to the action of speech, which speech expresses. To be sure, the object is not devoid of reference to speech. From the start, it is already partially given in the system of objects or objective system. Note: Système objectal ou objectif. Objectal is a word coined with the technical vocabulary of psychoanalysis, Robert gives 1951 as its date of introduction, to describe whatever relates to the objects independent of the subject's ego. Objectif has a venerable history in philosophy, linguistics, and ordinary usage. It corresponds roughly to objective, including therein the often neglected philosophical senses in English and such uses as in the objective of a telescope. End note. In which one should include the accumulated prejudices which make up a cultural community, up to and including the hypothesis, the psychological prejudices even, from the most sophisticated generated by scientific work to the most naive and spontaneous, which most certainly do not fail considerably to influence scientific references to the point of impregnating them. So here is the subject invited to abandon himself entirely to the system. It is just as much the scientific knowledge he possesses or what he can imagine on the basis of the facts he possesses as to his condition, his problem, his situation, as the most naive of his prejudices upon which his illusions are founded, including his neurotic illusions, insofar as what is at stake there is an important part of the constitution of the neuroses. It would seem, and this is where the problem lies, that this speech act can only progress along the path of intellectual conviction, which emerges from educational intervention, that is to say a higher intervention, which comes from the analyst. Analysis progresses through indoctrination. It is this indoctrination one has in mind when one talks about the first phase of analysis as having been intellectualist. Of course it never existed. Perhaps some intellectualist conceptions of analysis were around then, but that doesn't mean that intellectualist analysis actually took place. The forces authentically at work were there from the beginning. If they hadn't been, analysis would never have had the opportunity to show its metal and assert itself as an obvious method of psychotherapeutic intervention. What is called intellectualism in this context is something completely different from what is connoted were we to speak of something intellectual. The better we analyze the various levels of what is at stake, the better we will be able to distinguish what has to be distinguished and unify what has to be unified, and the more effective our technique will be. That is what we will try to do. So there really must be something other than indoctrination to explain the effectiveness of the analyst's interventions. That is what experience has shown to be efficacious in the action of transference. That's where the opacity begins. What, after all, is transference in its essence the efficacious transference which we are considering is quite simply the speech act each time a man speaks to another in an authentic and full manner there is in the true sense transference symbolic transference something takes place which changes the nature of the two beings present but there what is at issue is a transference other than the one which is initially encountered in analysis not only as a problem but as an obstacle indeed this function should be located on the imaginary plane so it is to specify it that the notions you are familiar with the repetition of prehistoric situations unconscious repetition the putting into effect of a reintegration of history history in the opposite sense to the one i once put forward since it is question of an imaginary reintegration the past situation only being experienced in the present, without the knowledge of the subject, insofar as its historical dimension is misrecognized by him, you'll note that I didn't say unconscious. All these ideas have been put forward so as to define what we observe, and their reward is a guaranteed empirical finding. They don't uncover, however, the reason, the function, the signification of what we observe in the real. To expect an explanation for whatever is observed is, you'll perhaps tell me, to expect too much, to manifest too great a thirst for theory. Several hard-headed characters would perhaps like to impose a damper on us at this point. However, it seems to me that the analytic tradition doesn't distinguish itself by its lack of ambition in this respect. There must be reasons for that. Besides, whether justified or not, whether carried away or not by Freud's example, Few are the psychoanalysts who have not succumbed to the theory of mental evolution. This particular metapsychological business is, in truth, completely impossible for reasons which will become apparent later. But one cannot practice psychoanalysis, not even for one second, without thinking in metapsychological terms. Just as Monsieur Jordan was pretty well obliged to speak prose, whether he wanted to or not, as soon as he started speaking. This fact is truly structural to our activity. Last time I alluded to Freud's article on Transference Love. You are well aware of the strict economy of Freud's works, and to what extent it can be said that he never truly addressed himself to a subject which was not urgent indispensable for him to deal with. In the course of a career which had almost the span of a human life, especially if one thinks at what point in his actual life, his biological life, he began his teaching. We cannot but see that one of the most important questions in analytic theory is to know what is the connection between the bonds of transference and the characteristics, both positive and negative, of the love relation. Clinical experience vouchsafes it, as does, by the same token, the theoretical history of the discussions arising around what is called the source of therapeutic efficaciousness. In short, the subject has been on the agenda roughly since the 1920s. The Berlin Congress, first of all, the Salzburg Congress, the Marienbach Congress. Since that time, the usefulness of the function of transference and the manipulation we undertake of the patient's subjectivity has never stopped being questioned. We have even separated out something which some go so far as to call not just transference neurosis, a nosological label designating what the subject is affected with, but a secondary neurosis, an artificial neurosis, an actualization of the neurosis in the transference, a neurosis which knots the imaginary persona of the analyst in its threads. We know all that, but the question as to what constitutes the mainspring of what takes effect in analysis remains obscure. I'm not talking about the courses of action we sometimes undertake, but about the very source of therapeutic efficacy the least one can say is that there is an enormous diversity of opinion in the analytic literature on this subject. To go back to the venerable discussions, all you have to do is take a look at the last chapter of Fenichel's little book. I am not often one to recommend reading Fenichel, but as far as the historical data are concerned, he is a very instructive witness. You will see the diversity of opinion. Sachs, Rado, Alexander, when the question was broached at the Salzburg Congress. You will also see the said Rado announced in what direction he intends to push the theorization of the source of analytic efficacy. Strangely enough, having promised to spell out in black and white the solution to these problems, he never did so. It seems that there is some mysterious resistance at work, acting so as to keep the question in comparative darkness, not only on account of its own obscurity, since little glimmers of light sometimes appear in this or that. Researchers work the more reflective subjects. One really has the feeling that the question is often caught sight of, that someone gets as close as is possible to it, but that it exerts some sort of repulsion which forbids it being rendered into concept. Perhaps here more than elsewhere it is possible that the completion of the theory, and even its progress, are experienced as a threat. That isn't to be excluded. It is no doubt the most propitious hypothesis. The opinions expressed in the course of discussions on the nature of the imaginary link established in the transference bear a very close relation to the notion of the object relation. This latter idea has now come to the foreground in analytic theoretical work, but you are aware of the extent to which the theory wavers on this issue. Take, for example, the fundamental article of James strachey which appeared in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, dealing with the source of therapeutic efficacy. It is one of the best-argued of texts, whose entire emphasis falls on the superego. You can see the difficulties that this conception gets one in, and the number of supplementary hypotheses that the above-mentioned stretchy is required to introduce in order to sustain it. He suggests that the analyst takes on, in relation to the subject, the function of the superego. But the theory according to which the analyst is purely and simply the mainstay of the superego's function cannot stand up, since dysfunction is precisely one of the most important sources of a neurosis. So the argument is circular. To get out of it, the author finds himself forced to introduce the idea of a parasitical superego, a supplementary hypothesis which is completely unjustified, but which the contradictions in his argument necessitate. Besides, he is obliged to go too far. So as to argue for the existence of this parasitical superego in analysis, He is obliged to posit that a set of exchanges of interjections and projections take place between the analysand subject and the analyst subject, which brings us to the level of the mechanisms by which good and bad objects introduced by Melanie Klein into the practice of the English school are constituted. This brings with it the risk of recreating them ad nauseum. One can locate the question of the relations between the analysand and the analyst, On a completely different plane, on the plane of the ego and the non-ego. That is to say, on the plane of the narcissistic economy of the subject. Moreover, the question of transference love has, from the start, been too closely linked with the analytic study of the notion of love. We are not dealing with love in the guise of arrows, the universal presence of a power binding subjects together underlying the whole of the reality in which analysis is played out, but of passionate love, as it is concretely lived by the subject as a sort of psychological catastrophe. It raises the question, as you know, of knowing how this passionate love is, in its very essence, linked to the analytic relation. Having said something nice about Finichel's book, let me tell you something nasty about it. It is as delightful as it is striking to note the sort of revolt, of insurrection even, that the extremely pertinent remarks of two authors on the relations between love and transference, seem to elicit in Mr. Finichel. They emphasize the narcissistic character of the relationship of imaginary love and show how and to what extent the loved object is confounded by means of one whole facet of its qualities, of its attributes, and also of its impact on the psychic economy with the subject's ego ideal. One thus sees the general syncretism of Mr. Finichel's thought, linked up in a curious fashion with this middle way which is his and which leads him to experience such repugnance, a real phobia when faced with a paradox generated by this imaginary love. Imaginary love, in its essence, partakes of illusion, and Mr. Finichel experiences a kind of horror in thus seeing the very function of love devalued. That is precisely what is at issue. What is this love which enters in as an imaginary mainspring in analysis. Finichel's horror tells us something about the subjective structure of the character in question. Well, for us, what we have to locate is the structure which articulates the narcissistic relation, the function of love in its widest sense, and the transference in its practical efficacy. There is more than one way to help you find your sense of direction in the midst of all the ambiguities which, as I think you have become aware make their appearance again and again at every twist and turn in the analytical literature. I hope to teach you new categories which introduce essential distinctions. These are not external distinctions, scholastic or ever-expanding ones, juxtaposing this or that field, proliferating by partitions off to infinity, a mode of procedure which consists in always introducing supplementary hypotheses. No doubt this method is open to those who want it. But for my part, I am aiming at progress and understanding. It is a matter of bringing into focus what is implied by simple ideas, which already exist. There is no point in taking apart indefinitely as one could, as has been done in a remarkable work on the idea of transference. I am rather inclined to leave intact the empirical totality of the notion of transference, all the while remarking that it is plurivalent and that it acts in several registers at a time, in the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real these are not three fields. Even in the animal kingdom, you have been able to see that it is in relation to the same actions, the same behavior, that we can distinguish precisely the functions of the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real, for the simple reason that they do not belong in the same order of relations. There are a number of ways of introducing these ideas. Mine has its limits, like any dogmatic account, but its usefulness is in being critical, that is to say, in arising just where the empirical efforts of researchers meet with a difficulty in handling a pre existing theory. That is what makes for the value of the path of textual commentary. Part 2. Dr. Leclerc starts the reading and commentary on the initial pages of On Narcissism An Introduction. Interruption. What Leclerc is saying here is quite right. For Freud, there is a relation between a thing, X, which has moved on to the plane of the libido, and the disinvestment of the external world, characteristic of the forms of dementia precox. Take this in as extended a sense as you can. Now, to set up the problem in these terms creates great difficulties in analytic theory, as it was constituted at that time. In order to understand it, One must look at the three essays on the theory of sexuality where the notion of a primitive autoerotism comes from what is this primitive autoerotism whose existence freud postulates it is a libido which constitutes the objects of interest and which is allocated through a sort of evasion of extension of pseudopodia beginning with this emission by the subject of libidinal investments Its instinctual development unfolds, its world is built up in accordance with an instinctual structure peculiar to it. This conception does not give rise to any difficulty, so long as Freud leaves out of the libido's mechanism everything pertaining to a register other than that of desire as such. The register of desire is, for him, an extension of the concrete manifestations of sexuality, an essential relation maintained by the animal being with the Umwelt its world so you see that this is a bipolar conception on one side the libido no subject on the other the world now this conception breaks down as Freud knew very well if one generalizes excessively the notion of libido because in so doing one neutralizes it isn't it quite clear moreover that it adds essentially nothing to an understanding of the facts of neuroses if the libido functions roughly in the same way as Monsieur Janet called the function of the real On the contrary, the libido takes on its meaning by being distinguished from the real or realizable relations from all the functions, which have nothing to do with the function of desire, from everything touching on the relations of the ego and of the external world. It has nothing to do with instinctual registers other than the sexual with, for example, whatever has to do with the domain of nutrition, of assimilation, of hunger, insofar as it is conducive to the preservation of the individual. If the libido is not isolated from the entire range of functions for the preservation of the individual, it loses all meaning. Now, in schizophrenia, something happens which completely disturbs the relations of the subject to the real, swamping the foundation with form. This fact all of a sudden raises the question of knowing whether the libido doesn't go much further than the definition given it by taking the sexual register as its organizing central core. That's the point at which the libido theory begins to create problems. It creates such problems that it has been effectively put in question. I'll show you that when we analyze Freud's commentary on the text written by senats President Schreber, it is in the course of this commentary that Freud becomes aware of the difficulties created by the problem of libidinal investment in the psychosis. And he then makes use of notions that are ambiguous enough for Jung to say that he had given up defining the nature of the libido as being uniquely sexual. Jung does take this step decisively and introduces the notion of introversion, which is for him that is the criticism which Freud made of him. A notion Unterscheidung nineteen fourteen C werke ten studien three uh, Standard Editions fourteen, quoted on page ninety above, where it is translated as indiscriminately end note lacking in capacity to discriminate and he ends up with a vague notion of psychic interest which collapses into one single register what belongs to the order of the preservation of the individual in what belongs to the order of sexual polarization of the individual in its objects all that remains is a kind of relation of the subject to himself which jung says pertains to the libidinal order what the subject must do is realize himself as an individual in possession of genital functions since then psychoanalytic theory has been vulnerable to a neutralization of the libido which consists on the one hand in firmly asserting that the libido is what is involved and on the other in saying that it is simply a property of the soul the creator of its world such conception is extremely difficult to distinguish from analytic theory insofar as the freudian idea of a primordial Autoerotism forming the basis upon which objects are progressively constituted is almost equivalent in terms of its structure to Jung's theory. That is why in his article on narcissism, Freud harks back to the necessity of distinguishing egoistical libido and sexual libido. Now you understand one of the reasons why he wrote this article. The problem is an extremely naughty one for him to resolve all the while maintaining the distinction between the two libidos. Throughout the entire article, he continually skirts around the notion of their equivalence. How can these terms be clearly distinguished? If one maintains the idea that they are equivalent in energetic terms, which is what allows one to say that it is, insofar as the libido is, disinvested from the object, that it returns back on to the ego. There's the problem raised. As a result, Freud is led to conceive of narcissism as a secondary process, a unity comparable to the ego does not exist at the beginning, nicht von Anfang is not to be found in the individual from the start, and the Ich has to develop, entwickelt werden, note, 10, end note. The autoerotic instincts, in contrast, are there right from the start. Those of you who are somewhat familiar with what I am putting before you will see that this idea confirms the usefulness of my conception of the mirror stage. The Urbild, which is a unity comparable to the ego, is constituted at a specific moment in the history of the subject, at which point the ego begins to take on its functions. This means that the human ego is founded on the basis of the imaginary relation. The function of the ego, Freud writes, must have eine neue psychische Aktion zu gestalten. In the development of the psyche, something new appears whose function it is to give form to narcissism. Doesn't that indicate the imaginary origin of the ego's function? In the next two or three lectures, I will specify what use, simultaneously limited and various, should be made of the mirror stage. For the first time, I will teach you, in the light of Freud's text, that there are two registers implied in this stage. Finally, if last time I showed you that the imaginary function contains the plurality of experience of the individual. I am going to show you that one cannot limit it to that, because of the need to distinguish the psychosis from the neurosis. Part 3. What is now important to bear in mind from the article's opening is the difficulty of experiences in defending the originality of the psychoanalytic dynamic against the Jungian dissolution of the problem. According to the Jungian schema, psychic interest comes and goes, goes out, comes back, colors, etc., It drowns the libido in the universal magma, which will be the basis of the world's constitution. Here we come upon a very traditional mode of thought, clearly distinct from orthodox analytic thought. Psychic interest is here, nothing other than an alternating spotlight, which can come and go, be projected, be withdrawn from reality, at the whim of the pulsation of the psyche of the subject. It's a pretty metaphor, but it throws no light on practice as Freud underlines. It does not allow one to grasp the differences that there might be between a directed, sublimated retreat of interest in the world, which the anchorite may achieve, and that of the schizophrenic, whose result is, however, structurally quite distinct, since the subject discovers that he is completely stuck. No doubt a considerable number of clinical points have been brought out by the Union investigation, which intrigues by its quaintness, its style, the parallels it establishes between what some mental or religious assizes produces and what a schizophrenic produces. That, perhaps, is a way of working which has the advantage of adding some color and life for the benefit of the researchers, but which quite clearly has illuminated nothing in the way of mechanisms. Freud doesn't miss the opportunity of quite mercilessly underlining that in passing." What is crucial for Freud is grasping the difference in structure which exists between the withdrawal from reality which we observe in the neurosis and that which we observe in the psychosis. One of the crucial distinctions is established in a surprising manner, surprising at least for those who haven't come to grips with these problems. In the refusal to recognize miconnaissance, in the refusal in the barrier opposed to reality by the neurotic, we note a recourse to fancy. Here we have function, which in Freud's vocabulary can only refer to the imaginary register. We know the extent to which people and objects in the neurotics milieu change significance entirely in relation to a function. There is no problem in naming without going further than ordinary linguistic usage as imaginary. Imaginary here refers, in the first instance, to the subject's relation to its formative identifications, which is the true meaning of the term image in analysis. Secondly to the relation of the subject to the real, whose characteristic is that of being illusory, which is the facet of the imaginary most often highlighted. Now, whether rightly or wrongly, it doesn't matter at this stage, Freud emphasizes that nothing comparable is to be found in psychosis. When it comes to the psychotic subject, if he loses the realization of the real, he doesn't find any imaginary substitute. That is what distinguishes him from the neurotic. This conception may appear extraordinary at first glance. You are well aware that one has to make some headway in conceptualization at this point in order to follow Freud's thinking. One of the most widespread of conceptions is that the deluded delirant subject is dreaming that he is bang in the middle of the imaginary. So in Freud's conception, the function of the imaginary cannot be the function of the unreal. Otherwise, there'd be no point in his denying the psychotic access to the imaginary. And since, in general, Freud knows what he is saying, we will have to find a means of filling in what he meant on this topic. This will lead us into a coherent exposition of the relations between the imaginary and the symbolic, since that is one of the points on which Freud brings this difference of structure to bear with great energy. When the psychotic reconstructs his world, what is invested to start off with? You will see along what path, for many of you unexpected, this will take us, The answer is words, there you cannot but recognize the category of the symbolic. We will push what this critique opens up further. We will see that it may be the case that the specific structure of the psychotic should be located in a symbolic unreal or in a symbolic unmarked by the unreal. The function of the imaginary is to be located somewhere entirely different. You're beginning to see, I hope, the difference between Freud's and Jung's appreciation of the place of the psychosis. For Jung, the two domains of the symbolic and the imaginary are, there completely confused, whereas one of the preliminary articulations that Freud's article allows us to pinpoint is the clear distinction between the two. Today it's only a curtain-raiser, but when it comes to matters as important as these, you can't raise the curtain too slowly. I have only managed to introduce, as moreover the very title of the article puts it, a limited number of questions which have never been raised. It will give you the time to turn things over in your minds and to do a little work from now to the next time. Next time I would like to see in commenting on this text as close a collaboration as possible from our friend Leclerc. I would rather like to see Grenov engage in this work. He seems to have a particular inclination and interest in Freud's article on Transference love. This may well be an opportunity for him to contribute by introducing this article. There is a third article that I would like to entrust to someone for the next time. It's a text which comes from the metapsychology of the same period and which pertains directly to our object. Compliment metapsychologique à la doctrine des rêves, which is translated into French as la théorie des rêves. I'll give it to whoever doesn't mind taking it on himself. For example, our dear Perrier for whom this will be the chance to comment on the subject of schizophrenics. 17th of March, 1954